I am Bo Ellis Breedlove, and this is the June Bug. Welcome to the second episode of The June Bug. Last week, we bore witness to the emotional challenges Caroline's family grappled with in the wake of her departure. We learned of Caroline's devotion to family and the lifetime she spent nurturing and cultivating loving relationships with all of those around her. A lifetime of unfaltering compassion that was swept aside by the invasion of an invisible foe into Caroline's world. This week, we will meet this foe for the first time. Details in the story, such as names and places, have been altered or fictionalized to preserve privacy. Episode 2 A New Companion Bitter, sweet flavors of creamy, silky, dark cocoa danced on Caroline's tongue as her eyes illuminated with delightful excitement. Her open-mouthed smile showed teeth coated in the black chocolate goodness, except for a single gap where her last baby incisor had recently escaped. Strawberry blonde locks of hair bounced as Caroline bounded up and down with joy. This was the first time she had ever indulged in a store-bought chocolate bar. At the age of nine, she had only experienced her mother's home-baked sweets in their farmhouse outside Wild Rose, North Dakota. Specially made for everyone, read the slogan on the label of the new Hershey's Special Dark Chocolate Bar. Thank you, sir, Caroline said as she grew more enamored with the Epicurean delight. She watched curiously as the man smiled and turned away, rejoining a group of similarly dressed men as he. They all stood together wearing beige, pressed slacks with matching button-down shirts. 
Various badges and patches decorated the fronts of their uniforms. As the group of young men boisterously shared stories amongst themselves, their bodies swayed to and fro, mimicking the movement of the Great Northern Railway train as it rocked and jostled. Young Caroline cautiously kept her balance as she returned to the rear passenger carriage. Getting closer, the sounds of her siblings playing and shouting grew louder. At last reaching the cabin, she saw it was overfilled with young families like her own, many of which had only purchased tickets for the accompanying adults. An abundance of children were scattered across the floor, or multiples tightly squeezed into single seats. The great exodus from the plains was underway. Like the families surrounding theirs, Caroline's had at last fled their homestead when the farm could no longer be salvaged. Now they found each other huddled in a train car 13 hours into a three-day journey to Oregon. Finding open space at her mother's feet, Caroline nestles against the wall and continues to nibble on the chocolate bar. Kids clamor around, asking what she has returned with and if she would share. But Caroline revels in this gift alone, refusing to share. The train jolts as the tracks begin to wind into the eastern foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Caroline savors the last bite from the chocolate bar while the train continues its rumbling and rocking. Nausea begins to set in as Caroline wonders if God is punishing her for not sharing. The motions of the railway only intensify the sickness, prompting Caroline to violently vomit over her mother's work-worn brown leather shoes. A loud whistle sounds as the train slows to a stop outside a white marble building. Large windows lining the building offer a glimpse of the grand milk glass and crystal chandelier crowning the interior. Tall golden brass doors open wide, welcoming the passengers inside. A sign hanging above the covered walkway reads, Salem, Oregon. Inspired by true stories, the Junebug Project is always looking for inspirational and informative experiences to share. You can share your story on our website, www.thejunebug.org. Caroline continued her bemused gaze at the chocolate bar in her hand as the memory from her childhood quickly slipped away. She set the chocolate back on the counter. Spring sunlight beams through the west-facing windows, 
Daylight is softly obscured by sheer curtains, floral valances, and the robust leafy branches of twin oak trees on a rolling hill in the backyard. A shadow moves gently over the dining room and living room as the sound of lightly creaking floorboards resonates. Vincent makes his way across the patio, watering an abundance of potted geraniums. Caroline cringes at the sound as she's reminded of how often she has pressured her husband to renovate their expansive deck. They are predominantly red, the geraniums. There are a few white ones and a set of pink in matching terracotta pots. Caroline is an unabashed traditionalist when it comes to her flowers. Her geraniums, roses, and azaleas are all red. An exception being the few that have been gifted by family and friends. Tea roses, though, those are pink. Tea roses should always be pink, according to Caroline. Rhododendrons, of course, purple. An abundance of alyssums lining the driveway and garden paths are pristine snow white. The singular exception Caroline makes in the beds of her gardens are yellow roses. Contrasting the floral sea of whites and reds, the canary yellow blossoms make a bold statement. Yellow roses symbolize remembrance. They were her mother's favorite. Once a month during the blooming season, Caroline makes the short drive into the countryside west of her Salem home to the cemetery where her parents are laid to rest. She brings a hand-picked bouquet of yellow roses for their modest headstones. The boards creak again as Vincent's shadow is cast across the room. Caroline has only just emerged from her reading room. Book in hand, she'll find a comfortable place to rest for a while and brush up on the history of the Holy Land. There are two rooms in the Aubrey household that have explicit ownership. Caroline's reading room and Vincent's den. Neither one can make alterations or additions to the other's room without their consent, and neither one tends to spend much time in the others. The two spaces share one wall. When Caroline has been shut away in her reading room for too long, as she often is, Vincent misses her company. He taps lightly on the wall beckoning his wife to set down her literature and join her husband. Aromas of coffee and banana bread linger in the air. Unlike his wife, Vincent has already been out of the house and back again. He woke slightly later than she and spent an hour at adoration. This was his Wednesday ritual. Thursdays are Caroline's day to attend adoration at St. Joseph's, a weekly task she frequently neglects. Faint music catches Caroline's ear, 
A woman sings, accompanied by a piano. The radio is still playing a religious station downstairs in the laundry room. Caroline, as usual, forgot to turn the radio off after finishing her daily ironing before sunrise. Caroline can't help but begin to hum along, even though she is still trying to finish a chapter on the Wailing Wall. This behavior has become more frequent in recent years, the humming, and more intrusive. Caroline finds herself distracted when she tries to focus on a task or finish a conversation. She'll slip off into humming a unfamiliar tune, much to the annoyance of those around her. This book, The History on the Holy Land, is one she has already read multiple times since first purchasing it in Medjugorje. That trip had been her second and final to the holy site. It was an arranged educational pilgrimage by the parish at St. Joseph's. It had been the furthest she and Vincent had ever been from home. Exotic travel is something she often dreams of, but still it eludes her. North Dakota is another destination she wishes to visit, the opportunity to see her childhood home. However, this is something Caroline keeps private judging her own desire to return to her impoverished roots. A disheveled newspaper rests beside Caroline on the couch. The front page is plastered with a salacious reference to Clinton's affair with an intern. Vincent often reads the paper here while Caroline makes his breakfast. she says to herself, rolling her eyes. Dope. Yet another shadow drifts silently across the living room as Vincent makes his way toward the dining room windows. A scraping sound lasts for a few moments, followed by a soft thud as he lets the hose slide off the railing and drops the nozzle down to the carport below. Vincent built this home for his young wife and children on land given to him by his father as a wedding gift. Living atop the West Salem Hills on Kingsman Drive was a prestigious accomplishment when Caroline was a young mother. She counted among her neighbors, state senators, former mayors, church leaders, and numerous influential business people. Many of the neighbors have been here since the Aubrey family home was finished in the spring of 1963. Dutifully, Caroline has come to know them all. The front door creaks as Vincent returns from his chore. Before he can greet his wife, the phone rings. Caroline answers, adjusting her reading glasses to see the caller ID. It is their son, William. He's called with a task or chore that he likely needs help from his father with at the family business. 
After receiving instruction from his wife, Vin retreats to the bedroom to find a clean outfit to change into before making his way to the family vintage car dealership, Aubrey Antique Motors. The master closet is Vin's dedicated space. Other closets throughout the house are brimming with his wife's summer dresses, holiday evening wear, and vast selections of shoes and purses. Flanking the sides of the walk-in master closet are two wardrobe rods. To the left are dress clothes, starched French cuff shirts, half a dozen three-piece suits, and various slacks and dress shirts. On the right are Vincent's work clothes, a collection of Dickies coveralls he's amassed since the 1950s. Vin fingers through the metal hangers until he finds his favorite, a blue and white gingham Dickies short sleeve coverall with matching belt and gold buckle. He bought it in 1971, and it has persisted as his favorite in the three decades since. Clad in his fashionable Dickies, Vin departs the house to visit his son. Tuesday, V helping W at the store. Caroline scribbles onto a small pink post-it note, placing the note on the interior of a cabinet door next to the phone. The interior of the Tupperware cabinet door is a hidden spot where Caroline keeps an archive of reminders and to-do lists. There, she presumes Vincent will never see. It's not that Mrs. Aubrey keeps her notes secret, it is more of an effort to keep her husband from interfering with her loose organization system. Briefly, Caroline glances over the notes and tasks. For a moment, she studies her grocery list. As she does so, a yellow post-it note peels away and falls to the kitchen floor. Kneeling down to pick it up, Caroline is surprised to not find it. On her knees, she takes a quick look around, peering along the floorboard trim, under the oven, and behind herself towards the refrigerator, but still, there's no note. A colorful beetle scampers across the floor and out of sight, giving Caroline a startle. What did that note say again? The mantle clock chimes. It's 11 a.m. A rumble shakes the crystal sherry set on the credenza. That's odd. Is he back already? Parting the shears above the credenza to glance down on the driveway, Caroline sees the top of a white pickup truck. The rest of the vehicle is obstructed by the opposing angles of the driveway and the patio. Footsteps approach up the stairs to the front door. As Caroline opens the door, she suddenly remembered what the yellow post-it note said. Tuesday, 11 a.m., Yardman. 
Manuel, I am so dumb, I completely forgot you were coming. Vin took care of the patio plants. Just do the lawn and clean the driveway, please. As Manuel leaves to go unload his tools and set about the work, Caroline thinks to herself, Why did I say that? Dumb. I'm not dumb. I'm just forgetful sometimes. Caroline scolds herself. Before closing the door, she spies it again. That pesky little insect from the kitchen. It had scampered behind Manuel and out of sight onto the front porch. Decades in this home had taught Mrs. Aubrey to keep a keen eye out for insects this time of year, early spring. Before building the home, the lot had been a small apple orchard. Ever since that first spring, there had been a seasonal battle against an infestation of various insects. Returning to the kitchen, Caroline pens yet another note to herself and places it on the interior of the cabinet door. Call Exterminator. As she does so, Caroline runs her fingertips along the worn edge of the maple cabinet door and for a moment recalls polishing the cabinets years before. A fleeting image of herself in a chartreuse day dress clad in a white lace waist apron comes to mind. The day dress was one she had purchased on clearance at Montgomery Ward in the spring of 1962. Like Vincent's gingham dickies, it had been her favorite for years afterwards. The chartreuse complemented her blonde hair and fair Norwegian skin. The dress had been three sizes too large, but Caroline diligently took the seams in to fit perfectly. Momentarily, Caroline wonders if she has enough baby food in the cabinet or if she needs to pick more up at the grocery store. Looking at the liver spots speckling the backs of her hands, she is reminded that her time of caring for three young children has long passed. Have you pre-ordered your copy of the June Bug novel yet? This book takes a deeper look at the story we are exploring during season one. Caroline, Vincent, and their love story through the trials and tribulations of dementia. Pre-order your copy on our website, www.thejunebug.org. A Fox News pundit boisterously shares his views on a Kennedy assassination conspiracy theory as Caroline reaches for the television remote. Before she can change the channel, she realizes something odd. Caroline can't recall when Kennedy was killed. In this brief moment, Caroline makes a startling realization. Her memory is becoming jumbled. 
Caroline thinks for a moment on how people tend to view history as it relates to their own memories and life experiences, often not remembering so much the historical events as their lives in relation to the event. Perhaps this explains her complicated recollection, she reasons. As the television contributor rambles on about multiple shooters and ties to Cuba, Caroline continues to think as hard as she can of that day. Still, no date comes to mind. Not even the year. Rather, Caroline thinks of her daughter, Margaret, running across the living room. She tripped and fell against the sofa. Margaret was... How old was she? Caroline was preoccupied in the kitchen putting away groceries in preparation for William's birthday party. Um, but which birthday was it? Margaret tripping and groceries on the counter. That's all Caroline can think of when Kennedy's assassination is referenced. Briefly, Mrs. Aubrey has a moment of deep introspection and realizes she has begun to lose sight of her own path amongst her memories. Recalling the death of Kennedy doesn't just bring about grocery bags and a crying toddler, but an illogical flood of other intruders. All of her memories and life moments tracing parallel paths. Kennedy's assassination, Margaret tripping, Vincent building the house, the death of her mother, mom baking those cookies in the farmhouse, dust blowing across the family wheat fields, poverty having nothing to eat, dad falling off the front porch drunk again, oh, her first time modeling for a photo shoot, that dress she wore to high school winter formal, a wrecked car and lies to Vincent about it, Vincent buying the car that was later wrecked, a childhood dog running into the farmhouse from the field. All of these events parallel in time. Caroline has just begun to realize something no one around her had yet noticed. Her timeline is beginning to fray. Little notes to herself, small reminders about what to do and what happened over the course of a day. She's not dumb, she's not stupid, she's definitely not senile, but bit by bit, these tiny fragments of her life have started falling away. Too small to notice, but then the fragments of events are being put back, but not in the right place, like a puzzle being forced together with all the pieces jumbled. The image becomes blurry. These intrusive moments of wondering if she needs to buy more baby food or thoughts of having a chocolate bar on a train collide with her daily rituals, creating a thick fog of confusion 
that Caroline pushes herself through. But Mrs. Aubrey has begun to stray from the well-worn path of her own life and into a densely wooded, unfamiliar terrain of mixed emotions and self-doubt. New trails beckon her, and step by step, she strays further away into the wilderness. Unaware of her overlapping timelines, she increasingly becomes lost amongst her memories. Fumbling to find the power button, Caroline abruptly turns the television off and stands from her leather scan design recliner. As she does so, she spots the bug again. It scampers past the open door and down the hallway. Caroline realizes it's a June bug. I've got to call that damn exterminator. Next week on episode three of The June Bug, Caroline has a horrific accident, something that changes her life forever and threatens the stability of her marriage. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. You can also help support this podcast and The June Bug Project by becoming a supporting member on our Patreon page, www.patreon.com backslash thejunebug. Thank you for listening. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Stay tuned for the next installment of The Junebug. of Breedlove Creative Enterprises. Thank you for listening.